We are in part 26 of our series, The Empowered Church, studying the book of Acts line by line. And this morning, we're going to be in Acts chapter 15. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to go there. If you need one, there should be a Bible underneath one of the seats in front of you. Acts chapter 15, and I've entitled this message, The Inclusive Gospel. The Inclusive Gospel. And the story that we're looking at this morning, is the turning point in the book of Acts. And I would argue that aside from the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the story we're looking at today is the most consequential event in the early church's history. In the passage, what we're going to see is we're going to see Jewish believers, ethnic Jews who had become Christians, grappling with this question. What do we do with people who aren't like us? What do we do with people that don't look like us, talk like us, share our cultural values? Now, we, of course, as a human race, have not always done great with that question, right? We have struggled with it as a species throughout our existence. Our track record is one of war and racism and all sorts of division as we seek to figure out how do we relate to people who are different than us. We are quite naturally suspicious and even judgmental of people who are different. And while few of us would admit it out loud, most of us, if we're really honest, we believe that the world would be a whole lot better if only everyone were just a little bit more like us. Isn't that right? And in a divided and suspicious world, followers of Jesus are meant to be an example of radical inclusivity. Our Savior said after his resurrection and before he ascended into heaven, he said, go and make disciples of all nations. He he did not say, go go and import American culture into all nations. He did not say, go and enforce your culturally driven moral standards into all nations. He, He did not say, go and fight culture wars in all nations. He said, no, 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 go out amongst people who are really different than you, people that you might not understand, people you might not naturally connect with, and I want you to share with them the message that peace with God is possible through Jesus Christ, and that that peace is available to all people regardless of their culture, their background, their fears, or their past actions. That is our message. If you're following along on the bulletin or the app, I want to give you the fill in the blank. It's real simple. The fill in the blank is this. Everyone is welcome at God's table. Everyone is welcome at God's table. That is our message, and it is radically inclusive. All are welcome at God's table, and there is grace to spare. Now, the challenges of embracing radical inclusivity are many, and among them are the idea that we must get comfortable with people who not, are not like us. We must, we must get comfortable with people who do not share our moral standards. We must get comfortable with recognizing that what we consider normal is actually pretty weird to people who don't have our same background. But this is, what part of what make, this is part of what makes our faith so beautiful. Do you understand you don't have to qualify to be a Christian, right? God lavishes his grace on all who would put their trust in him. The late pastor Timothy Keller put it this way. He said, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. At this point in the book of Acts, 
the Apostle Paul and his crew have been doing ministry amongst Gentiles, in other words, non-Jews. And they've been telling Gentile people about Jesus, and Gentiles are coming to faith, and they're becoming Christians. In fact, Acts chapter 14, which Pastor Lance led us through last week, ends with Paul and Barnabas returning to Antioch with all sorts of tales of how God was working among Gentile people. And with Gentiles now becoming Christians, that meant Jewish believers and Gentile believers were now sharing the same faith. And that is wonderful and amazing for many reasons. But it also meant that Jewish Christians had to learn to coexist with people who did not share their cultural background. And that was starting to create some controversy. Let's pick up the story in Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So there's all this excitement in the church, of, church in Antioch. Gentiles are getting saved. The church is growing. There's all sorts of enthusiasm for what God is doing. But then some men arrive from Judea and they say, hold up. In order for a person to be saved... Not only do they need to profess faith, but they also need to be circumcised. And it's safe to say that Paul is not having any of that. In chapter 15, verse 2, it says that no small dissension and debate arose. In other words, things got pretty heated. And they weren't able to come to an agreement, but what they agreed upon was they said, okay, let's send you up to the church in Jerusalem, let's consult with the leaders there, and let's see what they have to say. And to be very, very clear, what they're arguing about is whether someone is saved entirely by grace, which is Paul's position, or if circumcision is required. So Paul and Barnabas head on their way, a 250-mile journey, by the way, this wasn't like the next town over. And on the way, they're stopping at all these different towns they'd visited before, and they're telling everyone about how Gentiles are coming to faith, and there's all this excitement. But then they get to Jerusalem, and they share this same report, and some people share their enthusiasm. But then there were members of the Pharisees, and they insist that Gentile believers, if they're going to be saved, they need to get circumcised and commit to obeying the law of Moses, which if you'll forgive me for being a little bit crude, if you're looking to dull enthusiasm for a movement, <laughs> you can't do much better than requiring adult circumcision. I'm just throwing that out there. But, all joking aside, the importance of this issue can hardly be overstated. This is not a question merely about circumcision. This is a question of about, of, of about, number one, who can be saved? Can Gentiles be saved? And then number two, how does God save us? 
In other words, this is a question about what qualifies us to sit at God's table. Are we saved entirely by grace, or is it a combination of grace and our good works? Paul, of course, argued for grace. The Pharisees argued that circumcision and obedience to the law were part of the deal. Now, it's really easy to dog the Pharisees here. Because, first of all, if you've read the Gospels, the story of, stories of Jesus' life in Scripture, the Pharisees are always the bad guys. So you look, you see Pharisees, and we just assume, at least I do, like, oh, they're the bad guys. Also, you just consider the situation. God is moving. People from outside Israel are getting saved. Like, salvation is happening. The church is growing. And they're over here going, hold on, everybody. What about circumcision? Right? That's just how I imagine them. <laughs> you were not prepared for me to talk like that. I, I understand this. <laughs> but who does that, right? Why would they do that? But let's put ourselves in their shoes for just a moment. These Christian Pharisees were, in many regards, a product of their upbringing, just like all of us, right? They had been raised Jewish, and they'd spent their entire lives learning about the importance of obeying the law. And they'd learned that circumcision was a mark of their identity as the people of God. In fact, Genesis 17 says exactly that. And now, these Pharisees who's, who had been trained in Jewish morality, who had been trained in these high moral standards, looked out and saw Gentiles who they had been told to, to separate from and who they had been told were separate from them. They're seeing Gentiles come into the church who did not share their background, their training in the law, and they're nervous. And they're nervous. They're afraid that there's going to be compromise. And we have to remember that these individuals who'd been raised in Judaism, again, once, once again, they understood themselves to be the separate, called-out people of God. So the idea of sharing fellowship with those who were not circumcised and did not keep the law was unthinkable. See, we make a very serious error. If in this case, we just assume the Pharisees were these bad people with evil intentions. They were converts to Christianity who loved Jesus and were simply advocating for what they knew to be true. This influx of people that they didn't understand and who had a background they couldn't relate to was a lot for them to process. They weren't opposed to God saving Gentiles. They just wanted to make sure that those Gentiles behaved just like they did. And come on. They're insisting upon a course of action that is completely normal to them. If you're part of God's family, it means you're circumcised and obey the law. They've been taught this their entire lives. Those were the requirements to be a Jew, so of course those are the requirements to be a Christian. Were they misguided? Absolutely. But were their intentions wicked? Almost certainly not. In fact, I would go so far as to say in their minds they were honoring God but not realizing they were excluding people in the process. But come on, how often can we do the same thing? How many stories are there in Christian history of people being excluded for all sorts of reasons that have nothing to do with anything biblical? Like, wow, that's really great that God is moving among those people and they're responding to the gospel, but they need to take a shower before they can come in here with us, right? Or, wow, that's really cool that these people are, pe people are getting saved, but I hear they wear ripped jeans, and that is, and some of them like preaching t-shirts and stuff, and just like, oh no, we cannot have that. 
Or man, some of them have a cultural background that's really different than my own. Or some of them even, they think about social issues or the way that the world works. They think about that really different. So they better change that first and then they can come on in, right? We can do the same thing. See, the, Gentiles, the, the Pharisees, they thought they were serving God, but really what they were doing is they were projecting their culture onto people who didn't share it. And it was creating a problem. In Paul's earliest New Testament letter, the book of Galatians, he wrote in chapter 5, verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision count for anything, but only faith working through love. And once again, let's just be really honest here. We can stick our nose up at the Pharisees and oh, how silly that they would require circumcision. But come on, what requirements do we put in place before someone can be welcomed here? Do, do we give the impression that you need to speak a certain way or, or dress a certain way? Do, do we give the impression you need to vote a certain way before you can be welcomed into God's family? Or I just think even to ask the question, if someone is far from God, not living for him, not giving any attention to him, what is the primary message they receive from the church? Is the message that God loves you and there is grace for you and you are welcomed in his family? Or is his message, get your act together, sinner? What's the message, right? I mean, do we expect people who are new to faith to adopt certain cultural practices that are normal to us? Do we expect people who are new to faith to live by biblical principles even though they don't yet know the Bible? Well, why do we do that? See, I think it's a lot easier to fall into the same trap that the Pharisees fell into than we realize. See, we like them can have the best of intentions but can be sorely misguided. When we create all these cultural barriers, we end up excluding people without even realizing it. So for me, and you can just try this on for you, for me, I read about the Pharisees and I think it's much more helpful to instead of being like, oh my gosh, that's so silly, I would never. Instead, I want to ask God, God, what if that is in me? Like, I'm not sitting here saying requiring obedience to the law, but what are the, what are the things that I put in place that can be barriers to people coming to faith? And God, would you help me deal, deal with those? See, part of the challenge of being part of a faith tradition that is based entirely around the idea that God freely gives us his grace is you end up around a lot of people who really need that freely given grace. And it is really easy to judge and stick our nose up at people whose need for grace is different than ours. Isn't that true? And part of what it means to participate in an inclusive faith is to learn to get comfortable with diversity of culture with diversity of preference, with diversity of thinking. It's learning to recognize that just because something is different than what we're used to, it doesn't mean it's bad. And if we're really going to believe, don't miss this, if we are really going to believe, not just read about it, not just say it, not just sing about it, but really believe that we are saved by grace through faith, then we must recognize whether we are clean cut or disheveled, whether we are rich or poor, whether we've never touched a drop of alcohol in our lives or we are currently fighting addiction, whether we are conservative or liberal, whatever your sexual orientation, immigration status, age, gender, criminal record, whatever. Every single one of us is equal at the foot of the cross and every single one of us is saved by grace through faith. It is a gift of God, not the result of works so that no one can boast, amen? amen. We don't qualify for salvation. We receive it as a gift. 
We need grace, and praise God, he gives it freely. And my goodness, what damage do we do when we look out into a world and say, oh yes, no, absolutely, there is grace for you, but you need to get that addiction figured out first. Or, oh yeah, there, there, there's grace for you, but wait a second, your sexual orientation is not in line with what, what the Bible teaches, so you figure that out first, and then you can be welcome. Or, oh yeah, there's grace for you, but you've got that dysfunction in your family, and you better get that sorted out first before you can be welcomed here. Listen, everyone has dysfunction in their family. You are not the only one, I promise. But seriously, how many people I talk to who are afraid of judgment because of those things, right? How many people I talk to, right? There is no but first when it comes to the grace of God. There is grace, there is grace for you but first. No, there is no but first. God's grace meets us the moment we cry out for it. One of my favorite stories in the New Testament, Jesus tells the story of two men who went up to pray. One of them is a Pharisee, and he goes up to pray, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase, but he basically says, oh God, thank you that I am not like those people. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not like this tax collector who's like standing right there going like, bro, I can hear you. <laughs> and he's like, thank you that I tithe, and I give, and I do all of these things and that I'm not like them. And then the tax collector stays a long way off, won't even look up, beats his chest and says, God, would you have mercy on me, a sinner? And Jesus says, one of those men went away justified, and it was not the guy who had his shirt tucked in. It was the guy who cried out for grace. And listen, I, I know we can get a little funky when we start talking about grace, 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 and acceptance, 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 and, and, and we, we go, well, hold up, what about Holiness, like the Bible has a lot to say about how we are to live. Don't, don't hear me saying for a second that holiness is not a big deal or that we should affirm cultural values that conflict with biblical values. Did you know it is possible to accept someone without affirming everything about them? <laughs> Guess what? If you and I were to have a conversation and start talking about what we believe about all sorts of things, we would eventually find some things about me that you do not affirm. And guess what? I'm eventually going to find some things about you that I do not affirm. I hope you'd still accept me. And I hope that I would accept you. And once we come to faith, our life becomes a process of learning to live in joyful obedience to Jesus Christ in response to his love for us. Holiness happens in community amongst trusted friends who are anchored in the word of God where we can grow together. I love what Paul writes in, in, in Romans 2 to a group of Christians who was getting kind of lackadaisical about their faith. And he says, don't you understand? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. So don't hear me saying that holiness is not a big deal. It is a that is, that is our life's work, to become holy. But we do that in response, not as a means of qualifying. God's table is open to everyone who would recognize their need for his grace. I think too often we give people the impression that they have to, be, have, they have to completely have their act together before they can be accepted in Christian spaces. And that's problematic for a lot of reasons, but I want to cite one in particular. When we tell people that they have to behave a certain kind of way or act a certain kind of way before you can receive acceptance, what we do is we encourage fakeness, right? Because, oh, if this is how I need to act, well, that's not really true to who I am, so I'm going to act this certain kind of way so that I can be accepted. This last Tuesday night, we had a, a men's event here in, in the worship center. We're having another one this next Tuesday. You should come. It's going to be great if you're a dude. But um, um, Pastor Lance was talking about authenticity, and he was talking about how authenticity is so important because you can't feel love through a mask. 
And I think that's really true, right? That if I, if I present a fake version of myself to you and you love that fake version, you're not loving the real me. Isn't that right? So when we put on a mask, like we restrict ourselves, we block ourselves from love. And I think it's also true that we can't be transformed through a mask, right? So when we create environments where individuals feel like they need to be fake, they cannot be transformed because what's being transformed is not even the real them. When we give people the impression that they need to behave a certain kind of way in order to be accepted, we just encourage fakeness and we inhibit their transformation. And then when we ourselves give into that, we're now, we're acting fake and inauthentic in order to experience whatever kind of acceptance we're seeking. We block our own transformation. We block our own transformation. There are many elements to being a pastor that are so weird. And like, I didn't grow up in church, like it is such a weird, like it's great, I love my job, don't hear me saying I don't, but it is so weird. And one of the weird things about being a pastor is how much people feel like they need to adjust their behavior around you. Like how many times I've walked up to somebody who has like a neutral expression on their face and then they notice it's me and like, you know, (laughs) we're good, right? Or how many times, I've, like, I've, I've seen it, where, you know, I get into that, like, so what do you do for a living conversation? I'm like, oh boy, here we go. And then the whole conversation changes. It's like I'm talking to a totally different person once they find out I'm a pastor. This last Thursday, I had kind of a funny incident where, so in the morning, I was playing uh, pickleball at Sun City Lincoln, which, no, I'm not old enough to live there. My parents live there, and I just go there because it is literally the only place in my life where I'm still the young person. True story, 41 years of life, I have never been complimented on how high I can jump anywhere except for (laughs) Sun City Lincoln. But you clear a credit card and you're like an amazing athlete. But so I'm there. (laughs) Someone came up to me last service. Hey, don't be dogging us people at Sun City Lincoln. I said, you know what I left out? I said, all those people that can't jump over a credit card still kick my butt in pickleball. So I'm not dogging anybody. But so this woman comes up to me, and she's, you know, whatever. She's joking around, having a good time. I'm not offended. I don't want to give you the sense I'm offended by this. She goes, oh, well, the pastor's here. Guess I can't curse today. <laughs> so I'm like, all right. <laughs> I'm just going to roll with this. And I say, well, someone who knows I'm a pastor's here. Guess I can't curse today either, right? <laughs> and here's the deal. And I mean, I'm kidding. I'm joking, of course. But like, here's here's the deal. Like, when we give the impression that you gotta be a certain kind of way, like, I'm not judging anybody who behaves differently around me. Like, I'm truly not. Some of y'all are like, oh shoot, have I done that? I'm not judging anybody. But I'll tell you this, it kind of breaks my heart. I'm like, what have I done? What has the church done that makes people think like, I'm like going to be judging them for all sorts of different things, or they need to put on a front in front of me. I don't know how well you think I have my act together, by the way, that I have my act together so well that I can worry about judging you. I do not, okay? I am much, I have enough of my own stuff to worry about to be concerned with that. But I just think, man, here's my point. We'll get back to the story. It's a bummer when we give the impression that you have to act a certain kind of way to be accepted. See, the Jews in this story were saying, no, 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 you need to do all of these things that have nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to be accepted. I think we can do the same thing. Let's keep going, verse six. The apostles and all the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. 
And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. So Peter has had this radical experience we have to remember, of seeing Gentiles get saved. All the way back in Acts chapter 10, he receives a vision where he's told he needs to go find a Gentile man named Cornelius. And Cornelius gets a similar vision, hey, you need to go find Peter. So Cornelius gathers all of his Gentile, non-Jewish friends and family, and they meet up with Peter, and Peter starts telling them about Jesus. He starts telling them what Jesus has done for them. He starts telling them that if you believe in him, that there is forgiveness for them through Christ. And then it's amazing what happens next. This is Acts chapter 10, verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. And it says they went on to be baptized. So Peter has this radical experience. Again, he's seen Gentiles come to faith. He's seen Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. So now, in Jerusalem, who they would have known about this story, he says, number one, y'all know that God appointed me to share the gospel with the Gentiles. Number two, y'all know that they have received the Holy Spirit. And then here's the real zinger. Number three, there is now no longer a distinction between us and them. We're not some spiritual elite force, and they're like the newbies. We are all on the same level. We are saved by grace through faith. Whether we are Jews or Gentiles, we are not saved by circumcision. We're not saved by our obedience to the law. We are saved by our faith in Christ. So why, he goes on to say, are you putting God to the test, an expression that literally means inhibiting what God is trying to do in a manner that would provoke judgment? Why are you putting him to the test by asking the Gentiles to do what we can't even do? He says, we're saved by the grace of Jesus Christ, and so are they. Writing to the church in Rome years later, Paul would cover a similar concept in Romans chapter 3. These verses might be familiar to you if you've been in church a long time, but man, is the, the truth of them just timeless and beautiful. He says in verse 20, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. In other words, none of us can keep the law perfectly, so the law is just going to be a reminder to us that we fall short, that we need grace. He goes on, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. In other words, the ability to be righteous before God apart from the law has been made known. He goes on, he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That is the inclusive gospel right there. We are welcomed at God's table, not because of our good works, but because of his grace. 
And I love what happens in verse 12. And all the assembly fell silent. Peter had his mic drop moment, right? I can imagine all the pro-circumcision people sort of looking at each other. Well, he does have a good point. I don't know. Again, this is how they talk, I've decided. It says all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So Paul and Barnabas are now sharing stories of how they've done ministry in all these Gentile cities and they've seen God act in signs and wonders in the miraculous. In fact, when Paul was writing his New Testament letters in three of them, he would remind the people he was writing to, hey, remember how you saw the Holy Spirit's power through signs and wonders in your midst. The Holy Spirit Spirit's power was shown to the Gentiles through the miraculous, and that was part of what led to them turning to Jesus in faith. So after Paul and Barnabas, it is now James's turn to get up to speak. If we think of this group who's debating this issue as like a board or something like that, James is the chairman of the board. He was the half-brother of Jesus, but more importantly, he was a man of unquestioned faith and character. Verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is just an alternate pronunciation of Simon Peter, Simon Peter, Simeon, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. Real quick, throughout the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 14 and others, when God speaks to Israel, God refers to them as a treasured possession or a people from, among, from, out, of, from out of the Gentiles, a people for his name. Now James is saying God is making from the Gentiles a people for his name. The Bible is full of words that are not random, but that harken back to Old Testament prophecy. So he He's saying, God has taken from the Gentiles a people for his name. Verse 15, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. James is citing a prophecy from Amos chapter 9, written hundreds of years before this, where God says he will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. This rebuilding is believed to be a a prophecy about the resurrection and glorification of Jesus Christ who came from the line of David. And then it says in Amos that a remnant of the Gentiles will seek the Lord. If you put it all together, what James is saying is he's saying this prophecy in the book of Amos, it points towards the present reality. He says, y'all, what the prophets predicted hundreds of years ago is coming to pass. Jesus Christ, the anointed one, God's son has defeated Death and the Gentiles are now coming to faith. He's saying everyone is welcome at God's table. And this isn't just some weird, random, new cultural development. This has been God's plan from the beginning. He continues, verse 19. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. To deal with verse 21 first, he says, listen, our Gentile believers are going to learn the law because it's going to be taught in environments of worship. But in this 
section, James does not directly state, now, hey, let's not worry about circumcision. But he very clearly implies it by saying, let us not trouble these Gentiles who turn to God. And then in verse 20, he turns to some practical concerns. See, in most cities, we were now going to have Jewish believers and Gentile believers intermingling. They were going to have fellowship together. They were going to eat together. And a big deal in the Jewish world is not eating meat that had been sacrificed to idols. In the Gentile world, this was a very common practice. Meat or animals would be sacrificed to a pagan deity. That meat would get sold in the marketplace and people would eat it. No big deal. But Jews were expressly prohibited from engaging in that sort of practice. Exodus 34, Deuteronomy, or excuse me, Leviticus 17 talk about this. Now, I don't know about you, but avoiding meat sacrificed to idols is not like a live issue in my life right now. I'm not like going to the meat counter at Rayleigh's and like, hey, can I get two pounds of tri-tip? And that cow wasn't sacrificed to Artemis, was it, right? But again, this was a live issue in the first century. It happened all the time. And for a Jewish person to even see somebody else eating meat sacrificed to idols would have been deeply offensive to them. So what James is saying, and this is instructive far beyond, again, I joke about Meat sacrificed to idols is not a live issue. We have all sorts of issues this can apply to. What James is saying is he is not trying to restrict their freedom, but rather what he is saying is he's saying, would you voluntarily give up some of your freedom to not wound the conscience of your brothers and sisters in Christ? I know that eating meat sacrificed to idols is not a big deal to you. I'm not even telling you it should be a big deal, but it's a big deal to your brothers and sisters in Christ, so how about you lay off it so that you don't harm their conscience. See, we talk about this often here at Bridgeway because a number of biblical texts speak to it, but Christian freedom is not the idea that you and I can just do whatever we want with no restriction or concern for others. Christian freedom is the freedom to serve and care for others because we're not dominated and held captive by our own interests. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Our freedom is meant for us to serve one another. So again, James is saying, would you be willing to lay off this practice that's harmful to your friends for their sake? See, a Christian who truly understands their freedom in Christ will say, you know, Jesus, he was the son of God. He had all the freedom in the world, and he sacrificed all of it. He died on the cross for me. So it is my joy to voluntarily sacrifice some of my freedom out of love for him and love for you. See, when we justify offensive behavior by saying, oh, I'm just exercising my freedom, we have strayed from a Christian understanding of freedom. We live in this weird cultural moment where we celebrate offending people who disagree with us. That is disgusting. That is not a Christian ethic of freedom of expression at all. I'm not saying we will never be offensive, but what I am saying is offending others should never be the goal, and it certainly should not be celebrated. So what's at issue here is not, it's, it's not even about eating as much as it's about are you willing to lay down your freedom for the sake of not harming your brother? And the issue of 
avoiding what has been strangled or had its blood, had not had its blood drained was a similar issue. These are references to dietary laws in the Old Testament. For example, right after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, God tells Noah that we are not to eat animals that still have the blood in them. So James in verse 20, he talks about four things, and three of them are related to food. And the other one is a little bit uh, out of left field. He says, abstain from sexual immorality. The Greek word there is porneia, and you will likely recognize that word part, and it refers to any sexual activity outside of God's design for sex between a man and a woman in the context of marriage. And this is not a sermon about sex, you're welcome. But <laughs> these couple of words remind us that as followers of Christ, we are invited into and called into a sexual ethic that is beautiful and wonderful and God-honoring, but it is radical in the eyes of the world. And I'm not going to try to pretend like it's anything other than that. Now, I became a teenager, or became a teenager. I was a teen. <laughs> I was a teenager in the late 90s. There we go. I became a Christian at that time. Words. I became a Christian in the late 90s as a teenager, and I kind of got into sort of Christian spaces in a time where our basic message about sex for teenagers was, sex is gross, you should be afraid of it, save it for the one you spend the rest of your life with. Like, <laughs> yeah, some, some of y'all, yeah, children of the 90s are like, yep. That is not, in my opinion, a particularly helpful message. And unfortunately, versions of that persist today. The truth is, Sex is not gross. Sex is a gift from God and is a gift that God created to be enjoyed within the lifelong covenant of marriage. So, so let us not dishonor God by teaching our young people, by teaching our singles that sex is gross or sex is something to be afraid of, but let us instead honor God's design for sex by affirming that it is meant only for the marriage relationship. And if that seems restrictive, if that seems unrealistic, if that seems countercultural, maybe remember that that is God's design and God is much more invested in our joy and fulfillment than we are so we can trust that his design is good and right. And if I can just be really, really frank, if that idea of, oh, sex is for marriage, is provoking some guilt in you? I just want to say, right now, there is no guilt in what I am saying. Listen, if anyone wants to judge you for your past behavior, that is their problem, not yours, right? There is only opportunity for you. There is a space for you at God's table right now. And there is only opportunity for you to move forward with the joy and blessing that comes from honoring God's design for sex in the future. I know these are big issues and they are complicated and a few sentences from me is unlikely to solve anything, but I understand there is no, understand there is no guilt here. There is only opportunity. So James says these are some basic ideas that we need to get straight in order to live together in harmony. But outside of that, let's not burden our Gentile brothers and sisters with circumcision or full obedience to the law. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, not that Judas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, and greetings, there we go, 
Since we have heard, verse 24, that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling to your minds, although we, give, we gave them no instructions. I love how they just throw them under the bus right here. Yeah, those people from Judea, they're not with us, just so we're clear. Verse 25, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. I've read this passage a hundred times this week. I think I've laughed every time. <laughs> Just the, like, there's this, like, long introduction, and then it's, uh, no eating meat sacrificed to idols, and if you want to get busy, put a ring on it first. If you do this, you'll do well. Peace. <laughs> really good economy of words there at the end. <laughs> but I want to just show you verse, verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. What right do they have to say that? Do we get to gather together and once we all agree, we can just claim that the Holy Spirit agrees with us? Is that how it works? No, but they're able to say that because they studied the scriptures. They looked at these Old Testament prophecies. They were anchored in the truth of scripture. And then they were paying attention, Holy Spirit, what are you doing in this moment right now as you're saving Gentiles? And they were able to come to a decision that is in line with biblical truth, that is in line with the message of the gospel, and that enabled Jews and Gentiles to live together as brothers and sisters in Christ. We talk about here at Bridgeway that we want to be scripture-soaked and spirit-led. That is such a beautiful example of that. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The council recognized at the end of the day, it's about Jesus. It's not about requiring people to obey the law. It's about Jesus. And I can just imagine the joy for these Gentile believers to be told you are welcomed into God's family. How encouraging it must have been to have Paul and Silas to speak these words, excuse me, Paul and Barnabas to speak these words of welcome over them. I mean, I, just to, for them to hear, you don't have to adopt a new culture that's not familiar to you. You don't have to adopt this whole new lifestyle that is outside of the kind of core tenets of the gospel. It is our joy to call you our brothers and sisters in Christ. That is radical inclusivity. See, when you and I, when we remember that we are saved by grace through faith, that allows us, number one, to experience God's grace for us to remember that you are welcome at God's table just as you are. 
And then when we experience that radical grace, we are then able to extend that grace out to others. I don't know about you, but I find that if I, if I find myself kind of deficient in my ability to show grace to others, it's usually because I've allowed myself to become deficient in my understanding of God's grace towards me. And when we understand God's grace towards us, we can be men and women who don't seek to build barriers. We can be men and women who don't seek to increase division. We can be men and women who don't seek to let those outside the church know that they don't belong here, but rather we can break down those barriers in Jesus' name so that the world would know that everyone is welcome at God's table. So I'm gonna pray. And I want to, there's a specific group of people that I'd like to invite to pray alongside me quietly as I pray out loud. Some of you, you're here today and you have never become a Christian. You have never said, Jesus, would you come into my life and be my Lord and Savior because you've been under the impression that you're not good enough. Maybe you've had someone tell you you're not good enough or you look at your own life and you go, man, my life is a mess. I don't have my act together, man. If they only knew, I don't know, would I be accepted? Listen, none of us have our act together. There is the space for you at God's table, everyone is welcome. And maybe today is the day where you say, you know, I am going to commit my life to Jesus Christ. I'm going to receive his grace and forgiveness. I'm going to become a Christian today and let that grace wash over me and begin to transform my life. If that's you, I'm going to pray in just a moment, and I want you just to pray along with me as I pray out loud, and then I'll just pray a prayer of blessing over the rest of us. So let's pray. Again, if you want to pray to become a Christian today. You can just pray alongside with me. Jesus, I thank you for your love. I thank you for your grace that meets me right now in this moment. Thank you, Jesus, that you came down from heaven and you died on the cross and that when you died on the cross, you paid the penalty for my sin. So I can know that when I believe in you, all that is left for me is your grace and your mercy and your kindness. I pray that you would come into my life. I pray, Holy Spirit, you would begin to transform me. Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to receive this inclusive gospel, and I want to be a messenger of grace out into the world. I thank you that you have forgiven me, and it is my joy to say I want, to the best of my ability and with your help, to live for you under your grace. And if you prayed that today, after we close the service, there'll be members of our prayer team up here. And I just want to encourage you, just come on forward and let them know, hey, I prayed to become a Christian today. And it's not going to be weird, I promise, but they will want to be able to just congratulate you and just pray with you and just bless you today as you've made that commitment. So please do come see them. And, and for the rest of us, God, we thank you that we truly are saved by grace through faith. God, for those of us that have been walking with you for a long time, would you give us eyes to see barriers that we've put up to people in our lives to give them the impression that they need to fix things about themselves before you can love them? God, I pray that we would have reminders ourselves as we all are just battling our own issues. We have sin in our lives that is creeping around that is difficult for us to overcome. We have areas of struggle. God, would you remind us that your grace meets us in those moments? that you love us in our worst moments and you love us in our best moments. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that your grace would do the powerful work that shame and guilt never could, and that is that it would heal us, it would transform us, and that we would be able to, again, be messengers of grace out into a world that needs a touch of your love. God, we can talk about these things not because we've done anything 
to earn having all of this be true. We can talk about these things because it is true, because you sent your son to die and rise again, and you sacrificed to welcome us into your family. So we thank you that everyone is welcome at your table, even us. What a glorious truth that is. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your awesome name. And all of God's people said? Amen. Amen. God bless you. See ya.